these laws all over the country, bills introduced and other kinds of decrees being signed on to by state school boards, they are meant to function as gag orders. Anything that is in that book, you know, couldn't be introduced in the classroom, couldn't be given as an assignment. And so we use the term gag orders because that is the intended and actual effect. Well, I think the most important thing for people to do is to understand this is a threat. The librarians, the teachers really need people's help to come to their aid in this moment because it is a a wide scale attack on public education. Welcome to episode 86 of the Refuse Fascism podcast. This podcast is brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Coco Das, one of those volunteers, guest hosting this week's episode. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in this country. In today's episode, I'll be sharing a conversation I had with Jonathan Friedman, Director of Free Expression and Education at PEN America, about the educational gag orders and epidemic of book bannings taking hold across the country. But first, we have to talk about how last week ended with a fascist outrage that cannot be understated. The acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse giving a green light and judicial backing to a fanatical movement primed to unleash widespread violence and terror and commit ever greater atrocities against the people they hate. The parents of Anthony Huber, one of the heroic protesters Rittenhouse gunned down last August, said the verdict, quote, sends the unacceptable message that armed civilians can show up in any town, incite violence, and then use the danger they have created to justify shooting people in the street, end quote. Jacob Blake's uncle, Justin Blake, who had been standing vigil outside the courthouse throughout the trial, had this to say after the verdict was announced. We're joined by Justin Blake. Justin, I, I know that this is not the moment that you expected or hoped to see, but what What's your reaction for our audience back in Chicago who is hearing this and to the larger community here in Kenosha? What do you want them to know? Assalamu alaikum family. How's everybody doing this afternoon? Everybody, please take a deep breath. What we saw here was a terrible, tragic injustice. These young men were trying to support my nephew, Jacob Blake, who was shot in the street seven times in the back in front of their children and Anthony was his friend, it almost tore his heart out. He thought by coming out to peacefully protest was the way to handle things until police officers fired uh, rubber bullets at him in this field that we're standing in, which pushed them into Sheridan Avenue and on into the militia. The mayor, the police chief, the people who are running the army have blood on their hands today. This isn't just an attack on African-Americans, I keep saying that. With the thing on January 6th down at the White, uh, up in D.C., this is attack on our diplomacy, on our uh, uh, democracy. So you can sit back and say it's not your people and it's not us and let the first domino fall. But this is a direct attack on our democracy and republic that we live in. I think a lot of people are concerned about what happens now. What would your message be to the young people of this community going forward as they react to this verdict? 
Yeah, well, I'm not going to sing no uh, violin song and say be peaceful. I want everybody to try to be as peaceful as they can. But as Martin Luther King said, there's a check out there that's overdue for African-Americans. We made this country the greatest country in the world for 300, 400 years of free slavery. We need ours like yesterday. We need that check cash. We need it brought to our people and cash. This president, Biden and Harris, sold out our family sold out the Floyds and sold out Bianca Austin and the Taylor family. They said they were going to do things to square up what was going on in our African-American community and have not. So juries like this will continue to happen until the president that we changed this state from a red state to a blue state. The first state that he won was here and gave him great momentum to go in there. I didn't need a ticket to go up there to the White House when he got inaugurated. I need to bring something. We need to bring something tangible back to our communities. And this was a god-awful sight for the whole world to see the racism, the underbelly of racism that runs throughout this country in every jurisdiction. Was this an expected verdict? And now that it's happened, how do you explain this well, to we, 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 we don't we, we don't know the intricacies of criminal justice. This is why we fight every day for criminal justice reform. The judicial bias with this judge, the behavior of this judge, the way he was treated as a defendant, there's not a black or brown defendant in Kenosha County or any other county that can come up actually missing while on bail. On. After they find him, they release him back on bail. There is not a black or brown defendant who can co-mingle with other people in nefarious backgrounds and it not be brought into evidence. So we don't know. Black pastors can't go to a courtroom in Brunswick, Georgia. Black people can't go uh, into legal proceedings in Charlottesville, Virginia. I mean, the, the challenge that America has with this verdict is, is this the country that you want? Because this is not the country that we want. We want equal protection under the law. The fact that uh, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum was white, racism is more deadly than COVID. It is, it is, it is indiscriminate. It doesn't it just affect white people, it affects all of humanity. And our challenge now is to use peace, protest, and civil disobedience to continue to move this forward. We must continue to fight for equal protection under the law. This verdict is outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. How does the rest of the country, or should the rest of the country, view what happened here today in Kenosha? And Justin, we'll go to your first. Well, see, it sets precedence. That's what people don't understand. Uh, by them saying you could shoot the DOJ under a Democratic president said it was okay to shoot my nephew seven times in the back. Well, if it happened here, if somebody does it in St. Louis or uh, say Michigan, it be, will be okay. So now that they said this young man can carry a, a weapon, which was illegal at 17, they threw that out and shot two people, murdered two people and shot a third, and that's okay, where? What is our world upside down? So we have to keep our poise about ourselves. We have to continue to work together. We were down at the federal building in Chicago, marching with the Haitians. We're going to be with the Jam uh, Jamaicans. We're going to be with the Ghanaians and the African-Americans. You have made a coalition that you cannot take apart. It would take us a minute and a little more fight to get what we came for. But once we capture that prize, we're going to change the world. You know, this, ver this verdict emboldens the white supremacists. It, em it, em it emboldens the insurrections. Uh, the insurrectionists, January 6th. Of course. And those who want to suppress criminal justice and suppress black and brown people. The fact of the matter is, this is not the America 
that we have for. This is not the America that Dr. King dreamed of. And we have to continue to mobilize, organize, use peace, protest, and civil disobedience to move our nation forward. This is, this is a sad day, but we as a people have learned how to do one thing. We've learned how to turn our pain into power. Bishop Grant, you have been meeting with community groups here in Kenosha for the last several days, evenings after you've left the courthouse, correct? Yes, yes. What have you been telling them? And what have you been telling them to prepare for this moment? No matter what, no, no, no matter what has happened in, 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 in our historical trek towards freedom, have we resorted to violence and looting and rioting? We have a collective commitment, a collaboration of leaders here in Kenosha and across the region to be responsible, to bear the obligation of keeping people safe and keeping our communities whole. We in the civil rights community and social justice have never been about taking lives but saving lives. We've never been about tearing communities down but building them up. We've never been about division but unity. The forces that we face right now all over this country want us to put people in harm's way want us to continue the bloodshed that Cal Rittenhouse put on the streets of Kenosha. We will not, we will not, we will not be, uh, we will not be uh, distracted. We'll stay focused and we'll save more than we lose. You're looking forward to what's happening in Georgia. Is that the next horizon? Ahmad Arbery is critical to where we are right now. How does a defense attorney stand up and say black pastors can't come into a courtroom and hundreds upon hundreds of pastors uh, converged on, on, on uh, Brunswick, Georgia on yesterday along with uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson and Al Shopton, uh, Reverend Jamal Bryant and many, many others. That case is similar. The presumption that Ahmaud Arbery was jogging and a burglar, the presumption that they had the right to detain him under civil, uh, under citizen's arrest, an 1863 law that was used to catch runaway slaves. Imagine that in 2021. And the fact of the matter is all the evidence in that case, all of the evidence in that case points clearly a 36 second video. You had volumes of video here in the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, case. You have a 36 second video there. But look at what the defense has done. The defense went several weeks in weeding out and making sure that they could dismiss many, many African-Americans for serving on that jury. And they've tried on several times for a mistrial like the defense tried here. We cannot be daunted. We cannot be depressed. It's time to organize, mobilize, use peace and, 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 and protests and civil disobedience to fight our cause. This verdict puts black and brown people, women, LGBTQ people, immigrants, and anyone standing up for justice or deemed an enemy in the crosshairs of their revenge-fueled, genocidal, and rapidly advancing American fascism. We are on an ominous road. Trump's fascist foot soldiers in the halls of power and in the streets are getting away with the most egregious acts of injustice, while far too many decent people are capitulating in the face of it. This verdict furthers the momentum towards fascism and a nightmare for humanity that must stop. There is no time to waste in denial or turning away. It is the responsibility of all of us who do not want to live in a fascist America to condemn this verdict and stand firmly and courageously against this fascist threat. 
We honor Kyle Rittenhouse's victims, Joseph Rosenbaum, Anthony Huber, and the lone survivor, Gage Grosskreutz, heroes who stood up for Black lives, and salute the small numbers of people, far too few, who rallied outside the courthouse in Kenosha for justice. Paul Street, writer, historian, and member of the Refuse Fascism editorial board, was among them, along with members of Refuse Fascism Chicago and the Chicago Revolution Club. Let's hear from Paul's speech in Kenosha last Wednesday as the jury was deliberating. Acted as a tool and expression of a fascist movement figure and more organized than him, and that he did so with the encouragement and protection of the Kenosha police and the Wisconsin National Guard. We know this. We know this too. We know that his expert defense team has been funded by white nationalists and sociopathic Second Amendment gun maniacs coast to coast. We know this. We know this We know that this trial has been conducted by an openly demented racist right-wing judge who's been trying to rig the outcome for the defense from day one. We know this. We know this The whole world is watching Judge Bruce Schroeder's racist Along with January 6th and the weak prosecution of the fascist capital marauders, along with the racist voter suppression and election nullification measures being passed in dozens of states, along with the war this really blows me away. I can't believe this is happening. But the war on teaching basic historical truth in this country and states, along with the violent threats being made against school board and public health officials and even school nurses, and along with the right-wing legal campaign against abortion rights and gun control, a not guilty verdict in this case will be yet another step on the path to a fascist America. And as we are seeing right now, very clearly under Joe Biden, voting for Democrats once every two or four years won't stop this racist, sexist, authoritarian juggernaut. You know, I mean, it's, I, I get it, you know, voting that way, but it, in and of itself, that's not the only politics that matters. Only the power of the people united in a mass movement in the streets and public squares can do, can do the job. It must be a movement dedicated to what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called near the end of his life, quote, the real issue to be faced, the radical reconstruction of society itself. The only alternative to that reconstruction, Dr. King said, would be a fascist and racist police state. We have the power if we choose and organize to use it to bring that reconstruction about. We showed it in 2020. We can and must show it again before it's too late. No justice, no, no peace. No justice, no peace. The whole damn system is guilty as hell. All power to the people. Right on. Thank you.
These fascists hope that this verdict will cause the people with a heart for humanity to give up their hunger for justice and their right to protest. They hope that we will cower in fear and retreat into our private lives, just looking out for ourselves while a nightmare future becomes reality. We cannot give them what they want. We must not cede the public square and public discourse to fascists. We must not let them have the future. But to all those who are horrified by this verdict, but hope we can simply vote this nightmare away, Biden's statement about the verdict only illustrates again that the Democratic Party is more concerned with finding unity with fascists than stopping fascist murder. Here's a quote from Biden's statement. Quote, while the verdict in Kenosha will leave many Americans feeling angry and concerned, myself included, we must acknowledge that the jury has spoken. I ran on a promise to bring Americans together because I believe that what unites us is far greater than what divides us, end quote. This is peddling a dangerous delusion. As the revolutionary leader Bob Avakian wrote, Biden and the Democrats cannot bring the country together as they falsely claim, because there can be no reconciliation with these fascists, whose grievances are based on fanatical resentment against any limitation on white supremacy, male supremacy, xenophobia, hatred of foreigners, rabid American chauvinism, and the unrestrained plundering of the environment and are increasingly expressed in literally lunatic terms. There can be no reconciliation with this other than on the terms of these fascists with all the terrible implications and consequences of that, end quote. It also has to be said that Biden's statement preemptively scolds those who righteously want to protest this verdict for violence and property damage while saying nothing about Kyle Rittenhouse's violence, which killed two people, or the violence of the police that shot Jacob Blake in the back. Despite all the talk of violence and chaos during the BLM protests in Kenosha last year, the only person who killed anyone was Kyle Rittenhouse. Contrast Biden's mealy-mouthed statement with Trump's full of fascist certitude, Congratulations to Kyle Rittenhouse for being found innocent of all charges. It's called being found not guilty. And by the way, if that's not self-defense, nothing is. Well, it's not self-defense. It's white supremacist stalking and terror. We are in a struggle for our lives here, and it has to be waged in the public discourse, calling out the bullshit and really facing what we're up against, and in the public square nonviolently, but with real determination. The fact is that this hollowed out fascist GOP and its base does not fear the Democratic Party. They do not fear the laws or the courts. They increasingly do not fear elections, but they do fear the people rising up for justice and a better future. They do fear a beautiful rising. With that, here's my interview with Jonathan Friedman. 
So I'm so pleased to be speaking today with Jonathan Friedman. Jonathan is the Director of Free Expression and Education at PEN America, where he oversees advocacy, analysis, and outreach to educational communities and academic institutions. He is one of the authors of a recently released report from PEN America on educational gag orders. And I really urge our listeners to read this whole report. It's very comprehensive and substantial, and we really only have time today to scratch the surface of what's in the report, but everyone should go read it, and we will try to have you back at some point, Jonathan. So today we'll also be talking about the disturbing trend of book bannings around the country. So welcome, Jonathan. I'm so glad you could be here. Nice to be here. So let's jump into the report first, which states that between January and September 2021, 24 legislatures across the United States introduced 54 separate bills intended to restrict teaching and training in K through 12 schools, higher education and state agencies and institutions. The majority of these bills target discussions of race, racism, gender and American history, banning a series of quote unquote prohibited or divisive concepts for teachers and trainers operating in K through 12 schools, public universities, and workplace settings. So in your research, Jonathan, and putting together this report, what were some of the things you discovered that led you to conclude that gag order was the appropriate term for what's happening? Well, as we say in the report, you know, I think that there is this wide-ranging conversation that has been stirred about what is the right way to talk about racism in schools and American history and some of its, you know, more sinister and tarnished historical episodes. But I think that's a conversation. That's a debate. Let's have that debate. The problem is that these laws all over the country, bills introduced and other kinds of decrees being signed on to by state school boards uh, and pushed by governors and others, the thing is, is that they are meant to function as gag orders, meaning they prevent people from talking about certain topics, from raising certain bits of history, from responding to students' questions, from generally supporting kind of curiosity and inquiry and the free flow of conversation. And so we use the term gag orders, as we say in the report, because that is the intended and actual effect of these bills. If you think about a bill that says, uh, you know, that teachers are not permitted to require students to understand the 1619 project in schools, which is uh, part of the law in Texas, first of all, it's very vague, but it's also essentially telling teachers that anything that is in that book, you know, couldn't be introduced in the classroom, couldn't be given as an assignment. And that is a an alarming prohibition on what we think of as education in American democratic society. I mean, one of the things that I found really disturbing in these bills that you talk about in the report is this use of language that makes it seem like what they're advocating for is free expression and anti-discrimination. And also this concept of divisiveness as a criterion for banning content I think is very dangerous. It undermines the whole importance of vigorous debate and disagreement that is central to the whole process of learning. I say this as a former educator. I don't know if there's anything else you want to comment on 
on some of the ways that this is framed as sort of anti-discrimination legislation, if there's anything you want to add to that. But I also want to ask you about the trend of book bannings around the country. And even Mehdi Hassan did a rant on how we entered the book burning stage of American authoritarianism because there have been also calls to burn books. Can you give us an overview of what's happening there? What kinds of books are being banned? Where are these demands to ban books coming from? And how are these bans being implemented? Yeah, so there's a few different things there. On the anti-discrimination piece, it is an interesting component of the whole, what I would call like ecosystem around these bills. There have been efforts in recent years and a kind of history going back some decades to use language of anti-discrimination as a kind of means to legislate how schools and other public institutions operate. And some of that language here has been weaponized. It was weaponized as part of President Trump's executive order on quote-unquote race and sex stereotyping, which he put out last fall of 2020. And it was there that you see laws being made, an order there, and now that language has transferred to these bills all over the country that basically propose that curricular materials or readings or lesson plans that in any way kind of make students uncomfortable having to do with race and sex or suggest that American society or American history is systemically racist in some way, that those are kind of things that you cannot say. And it does kind of borrow the anti-discrimination playbook in terms of how they are written. The interesting thing is that we have opposed at Penn such laws and bills that also would apply to school books in schools and empower any authority to use that authority to remove access to literature on the basis of denigrating representations, because you can use that kind of orientation to remove as the basis for removing access to any books or, or any kinds of materials. So you could say, well, you know, something like Toni Morrison's Beloved has negative or denigrating representations, and therefore it shouldn't be taught in schools. And so that whole line of thinking, which we have seen sometimes used by people on the left, in this case being used by people on the right, is just a problematic way of thinking about how we should engage with literature, with history, with curricular materials. And honestly, the best place for young people to engage on these issues is with teachers in schools. That's why we have these institutions. The idea that it would be better for students to encounter materials independently or on their own, or that there are, you know, all these topics that are too taboo or kind of disruptive for students to learn about. Like schools, you know, among the social institutions we have, one of the most supportive and instructive for such conversations. And so that legislative effort has been happening, starting with Senator Tom Cotton and a bill he introduced last summer to defund schools that teach materials from the 1619 Project, continuing into Trump's executive order, which attacked diversity training originally last fall. And then those two kind of origin documents with different kind of language trying to get at the same effort to censor and stifle conversations about race or diversity, they kind of get combined and repackaged in all these state-level bills over the past year. And we counted 54 such bills, as you mentioned this year, all of which have some combination of those elements. Now, that would be bad on its own, right? But what is happening is that 
that front is being complemented by an effort to stir up outrage at the grassroots level and direct parents and community members against school boards. And so what we have now is essentially two different levers, uh, two different channels that are impinging upon the work of school boards, the work of teachers, the work of teaching. And so one is local parents who have been kind of empowered and, and they're getting the message, whether explicitly or implicitly, to essentially be intolerant, be unflinching, be demanding, to make their views of history and how books should be taught and what books should be banned known. That is kind of coupled with a legislative effort at the state level which is making teach school administrators and principals and everybody else, you know, review curriculum, review rules, review even optional books in school classrooms. And so all of this is putting just a tremendous pressure on teachers who, you know, if I were a teacher right now, of course, I would be thinking twice about how I talk about these things. And I'd be thinking twice about it if I'm in a state where one of these bills is law, but I'd also be thinking about it if I'm in a state where it isn't law, maybe where it's a bill has been introduced, but luckily it didn't pass, or I'm just in a state where people are threatening to introduce these bills because I'm watching the national political atmosphere around this and we're seeing it get so toxic and intense. And so I don't think we can underplay in just the severe environments that have now manifest in school boards where you have really angry people, maybe they're parents, maybe they just live in the community, maybe they're not, nobody seems to be able to know for sure, who are just kind of there to channel a great deal of frustration and rage at school boards over these things. Yeah, and actually educators have been driven out of their jobs from this atmosphere that's been whipped up. You wrote an op-ed for the New York Daily News called Parents and Politicians Versus Intellectual Freedom, The Danger of the New Book Banning Brigades. I want to quote a little bit from that piece. You wrote, an active minority is trying to push its ideology on students and teachers. They have a social agenda, a particular viewpoint, and appear eager to intimidate or silence anyone who disagrees. But what is alarming is how most school districts are responding caving to these censorious demands without much pushback. Never mind that most have policies to prevent the removal of books until such challenges undergo due process, or that the Supreme Court has said that students have a constitutional right to access information through school libraries. No, some districts have become so skittish that they are purging bookshelves at the urging of lone individuals. So I was wondering, what do you think is going on here? Why has there been so little pushback? And why are people who often know better capitulating to this? You know, it's an interesting question. I think that what is most often the case is that you have elected school board members who obviously haven't read every book that librarians in the district have put in in their libraries. Why would they? They don't have a librarian on hand. And so what they hear are these kind of decontextualized excerpts from books shared and read out at local board meetings. Some of these books are about sex or they're about other heavy topics and they're uncomfortable for adults. They're embarrassing to kind of defend in public. And so if you are an elected school board, member, you want to be seen in response to this to be taking action. There's this kind of like larger moral outrage climate in which it's very important to show that we, you know, are standing up to such things in our district. And so there's a lot of pressure and expectation and kind of performativity around how I think school board members are reacting and policies be damned. So unless you are 
quite knowledgeable in your district policy. You might not even realize that that policy exists. And school boards have long disregarded those policies. I mean, we have been at Penn active on fighting against book bans for years, but it used to just be a much quieter, small-scale operation. What we're seeing now is kind of a scale of this, which we haven't seen, I'm not sure, in some time. And so, you know, I think that the the policies are there, but, you know, nobody is really taking the time to read them or let alone enforce them or follow them. You know, that's hugely, hugely problematic. And it's problematic in these situations where you have one parent or one community member, maybe they aren't even a parent, or maybe they're a parent, but their kid didn't actually necessarily bring home the book in question. There's been a lot of questions raised about that concerning the particular individuals who have shown up at board meetings to complain about specific books. But let's just say, yes, as citizens, they have a vested interest in the book material that is available in the library, sure, or a public school. Fine. I I grant that. uh, And I think it's important. You know, there should be a way for parents to get involved to make their voices heard. But the problem is, is the assumption seems to be in each of these cases that because this is offensive to one parent, that therefore the board's reaction should be just as outraged in each case as that singular parent. You know, it's not like on every book there's a referendum being conducted about whether do 51% of the parents or citizens of that district want that particular book available in a library. And of course, that would be silly. That's not the way public libraries are supposed to work, let alone school libraries. And so, you know, I think that there are are all these reasons why school boards have been quick to remove books in response to these challenges, when really they ought to be able to respond to them in a more measured manner and explain. And and, and this is unfair to lump them all together. There are places where this has happened. Um, But to be able to explain, you know, well, here's the process for filing a challenge to a book. Here's how we'll review that challenge. And then we'll get back to you. And that's the way it's supposed to work, not this notion that someone complains and then we pull the books from the shelves. I wanted to get into just some of what's at stake in terms of if these challenges continue, if these slates of legislation continue to pass, what is the outcome for society? And I think something that needs to be a bigger part of the discussion in these attacks on education, especially in terms of the social studies curriculum and curriculum on history, is a struggle for truth. What historians reasonably ascertain to be true based on historical fact and evidence. And I think the notion that sort of seeped into popular culture, that there is no objective truth and everything is competing narratives, has done real damage to our ability to stand up to this assault. But I don't think there's that much difference between these gag orders and the kind of curriculum that they're trying to create and the big lie that Trump won the election. It's this idea that truth is what this side says it is. And that can be backed up with both state power and the power of the mob. And, you know, might makes right. Just to attach to that, I want to repeat a quote from an article called The Fight Against the White Supremacist Whitewash and fascist suppression of historical truth, mandatory lies and patriotic brainwashing. This is from an article by Rafael Cadaris or Revcom.us. He wrote, this fight over historical truth and what lessons and values students will learn from that is a high stakes battle in its own right. And it is a key front in a larger political war these Republicans are waging to restructure society with a new fascist order where truth is banned, dissent is outlawed, critical thinking is stifled, and white supremacy, male supremacy, and other oppressive relations are even more aggressively enforced. 
I'm wondering if you have any comment on that and this notion of truth and what you see as the role of truth, fact, and evidence in this struggle. It's a really interesting question. And I mean, I'm not a postmodernist, I'm not a philosopher, but it strikes me in, in the past few weeks, I have seen this notion of truth mobilized by really different entities. So on one hand, I see efforts by more progressive groups to talk about teaching the truth, and this is an attack on the truth, and we have to teach historical truth, and that should be in a singular sense, right? I have also seen some individuals associated with this effort to create a new university in Texas, in Austin, many of them people who are fleeing the culture wars and who have written a a screed against higher education, and they say that they're opening a university that is committed to truth. And they're coming more from a centrist, liberal, libertarian, center-right side of the spectrum. And and they are, and they're saying, you know, we're committed to truth, and that's what we're going to seek out here. And of course, they have no acknowledgement of the bill in Texas, which is banning the 1619 Project, no acknowledgement of the bills across the country attacking critical race theory, whether that's a, a real thing that they're attacking or not, but at least the rhetoric is there. And you see very little acknowledgement of the efforts to remove books in schools. And so you have to ask yourself, well, which side here can claim a monopoly on truth and you know that postmodern uh, notion that of forever subjectivity is an interesting one but as you rightly point out this does backfire in the sense that if we have no shared truth as a society we can all live in our own shared truths you know we have our echo chambers in one universe in which biden won and another in which somehow can't even imagine that i'm really honoring it by speaking to it that you know trump won and had the election stolen and so you know what is the answer here you know i'm not sure i really do hesitate to suggest both from a free speech perspective and wearing my hat as a former kind of scholar and academic that there should be kind of whole realms of truth determined by fiat where it's some leader or governing body or set of experts sets the truth and we all must follow it you know i don't think that it's good for democracy really any cohesive society to be so stifling of dissent but i do think also it is somewhat problematic so it's kind of like the way in which i think free speech can't exist as an absolute. And actually, this is central to the long-term charter of Penn and Penn International and Penn America, which is not only committed to standing against the suppression of thought, but has always sought to balance that with other commitments in our charter to dispelling hatred or standing against mendacious publication and fake news, essentially. And so we've always had a kind of a notion that free speech is important and it must exist alongside other societal principles as well. Among them, I would say, you know, a commitment to public health, a commitment to fighting misinformation, a commitment to anti-discrimination and pro-inclusion. And so I think that it is possible to try and imagine the society where we have both, but it does take a commitment. So in our current moment, to bring it back to the conversation here, it's like, I don't think the answer is to snuff out dissent about Trump winning or about vaccines or about really any of these other topics. But I do think the answer is that if we're going to allow that dissent, that we have to meet it with really strong public investment in education and public awareness raising about all of these topics. And that's where sometimes right now we have the problem because it's sort of like into the void of 
public awareness and kind of champions of, I don't know, common sense, we have seen a lot of grifters and others who want to peddle falsehoods. And they're being quite politically successful. So I don't know that that's a perfect model for how I think this could work, but it's almost like it's, it's kind of the old adage. It's easier to point to something that I don't like than to tell you what I do. Thank you for that, Jonathan. I'm going to get into my last question, which is, given the scope of this, there's a quote in the report, arriving alongside similar waves of legislation to restrict voting and protest rights, these censorious bills reflect a larger and worrying anti-democratic trend in U.S. politics. We at Refuse Fascism think that this needs to be understood in terms of of a fascist movement that rose to power, gained the White House through the Trump Pence regime and is advancing on different levels right now. So I was wondering, what are you hoping at PEN America to change or impact with the publication of this report? What are you hoping people will do after they read the report? Well, I think the most important thing for people to do is to understand this is a threat and that that has been kind of not as present in people's minds as protest rights and voting rights, where there is significant kind of organizing apparatus to bring attention to these things. But people are perhaps surprised to learn that there are 54 of these bills uh, and counting that have been introduced in this year alone, just since January. And I think similar to the anti-democratic effort against voting and the effort against protest, we've seen a very similar tactic, which is GOP legislators in different states work loosely from the same a shared template. I don't know if they're sharing ideas behind the scenes, but what it produces are uh, a number of bills in different states, which are all broadly similar, but then slightly different. Sometimes, you know, there's a legislator in a specific state, or sometimes there are other reasons why a bill takes on a slightly different shape, a different definition, a different form. And of course, when you're creating law, you know, you change a word, it changes the whole meaning. But what we're seeing is a similar kind of array of extremist repercussions for civic action, you know, that are kind of reflected in these bills. So whether it's legislating significantly harsh penalties for somebody who votes in the wrong place or a situation more that's like a human good faith error, but that carries such significant penalties, that's going to dissuade people from voting. If you attach a really significant penalty to being arrested at a protest, well, that's going to dissuade people from protesting. And if you attach a significant penalty, like a teacher being formally reprimanded or fined or a school district losing funding over something a teacher does in one of their classrooms, I mean, that's going to dissuade people from teaching. So it's a kind of similar extremist playbook being pulled from in all of these places to fight fictitious enemies, you know, fake voters, radical Antifa protesters. I think we have to be just really mindful of how all of these kinds of bills represent a infringement on our civil liberties and our, our freedoms. And it's quite alarming and quite dangerous. You know, and I think in terms of paving the way for fascism, you know, I don't know that I would go that far yet. But unfortunately, the problem with authoritarianism is by the time that you're there, it's much harder to backpedal. There's certainly an authoritarian element in the book bans, in the gag orders, in the anti-democratic legislation we've seen against voting and protesting, and it's kind of a similar vein. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I want to give you a chance to mention anything else you think our audience needs to know, and also how can people follow you and follow the work of PEN America? 
Yeah, sure. I'm at uh, JZ Friedman on Twitter, and you can also follow Pan America there. And I would say that the most important thing for people to do right now is speak out. A lot of people feel like if they don't have a kid in a school district, why would they be involved? But that is not the spirit that is animating the people who are bringing these challenges forward. And that spirit is so far in a lot of places really been unmatched. It's not being well countered. And so you have the only images or ideas that are being heard right now are those uh, who want to advanced censorship. And the librarians, the teachers really need people's help to come to their aid in this moment, because it is a a wide scale attack on public education. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thank you. It's important to understand that all of this is of a piece. Kyle Rittenhouse's crime and acquittal, the censoring of historical truth in our schools, and the banning and possible burning of books are a revanchist response to the beautiful rising of protest against police brutality and white supremacy in the summer of 2020, a mass movement that put fascists on the defensive and sent Trump to his bunker. This shows how much they fear our power when we fill the streets for humanity, diversity, equality, and justice for the future we want. In order to consolidate power, the fascist movement must crush dissent In order to create an obedient population that will go along with their genocidal program, they must brainwash the youth with patriotic education. Confronting and understanding the aims of this fascist movement and the necessity they face is critical to learning how to stop it. Thanks for listening to the Refuse Fascism podcast. Want to support the show? It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you want to help us reach more listeners, you can also donate to help us pay for ads at refusefascism.org or Venmo refuse-fascism. Thanks to Sam Goldman, Lena Thorne, Richard Marini, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers. We have transcripts available for each episode, so be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.